Turn to the light of Jesus Christ, which will examine and search and try you, and bring you to know Christ within you, and so bring you out of the reprobate faith. This will let you see the mystery which is Christ within, and this will bring you to know him come in the flesh. From Undaunted Zeal, the Letters of Margaret Fell. This is the OIM Greek Bible study, and we are reading the first epistle of John. This is session eight. And I believe we left off at chapter three, verse 11. Okay, then starting with verse 11 in chapter three. For this is the message you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We must not be like Cain, who was from the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be astonished, brothers and sisters, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed from death to life because we love one another. Whoever does not love abides in death. All who hate a brother or sister are murderers, and you know that murderers do not have eternal life abiding in them. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. How does God's love abide in anyone who has the world's goods and sees a brother or sister in need and yet refuses help? I think I've mentioned in an earlier session that this word that gets translated in verse 11 as message, angelia, is related to words like evangelion, which means gospel, and epangelia, which means promise. It's all the same root. So that's the root that gives us angelos, angel, angelia, message, epangelia, promise, Evangelion, gospel, they all have the same root here, angel, which means to give a message. And it's all in those various words. So you got Evangelia, promise, angelia, message, angelos, which is a messenger, or we also translate it as angel, but that all it means is messenger, messenger from God. And Evangelion is a gospel, good news. And at the end of verse 12, where it talks about Cain killing Abel, it says his brother Abel, his deeds were righteous. This is an important word in the New Testament, dikaios, which means upright. And so often in the Gospels, upright in God's eyes. And that's an adjective, dikaios. And the noun, dikaiosune, is righteousness, uprightness doing what's upright. In verse 13, it says, do not be astonished that the world hates you. You see this often, I think, in other books of the New Testament, that if you are really acting and doing God's will, that there are times, definitely, that you will be hated by the world, by the world meaning those with a worldly outlook, a materialistic outlook a point of view, a mindset that is not focused on the Lord God or on his Messiah, Jesus. And that word, of course, is, if anyone remember this one, cosmos? The created order. Right. The root just means to adorn something. 
cosmetics is the adjective cosmeticos, and to adorn is cosmeto. All the same root here, how God set up the world. So those are all related, and that's the verb. In the uh, next verse, 14, it says, we know that we have passed from death to life. Again, the word here for life, if you recall, I mentioned there are two basic words for life in Greek. One is bios, and the other one is zoe. And this is the word zoe, which means life in the sense of being alive. Henry, I have a question a couple of verses back. Uh-huh. The word dikaios, or the, uh, the noun dikaiosune, do we know whether, when they did the Septuagint, whether that's how the translators rendered the basic Hebrew word tzedek for righteousness? That sounds vaguely familiar to me. I think you're right. I'm not certain, though, but I think you're right. Because it carries a great deal of weight in Jewish thought and ethics, and I don't know if it's quite so rich in Greek. I'm not sure. I'd have to check myself on that. Uh, it's, it's a kind uh, yeah. Okay, okay. Okay, so we know that we have passed out of death into life, into a sense of being alive, and that's the sense of being alive here eternally, not speaking of mortal life specifically, because we love the brothers. Then it goes on, the one who isn't loving remains or stays in death. And it gets even stronger in verse 15. Everyone hating his brother is a murderer, anthropoctonos. And you know that every murderer does not have eternal life in him, remaining in him. So again, we're talking about form of life, eternal life here, versus this kind of spiritual death. So we're talking inwardly here about a spiritual death and a spiritual life. That word for brother, Henry, is it just male or is it inclusive of male and female? Well, so often in Greek, which is quite normal, the male form, the masculine form is usually inclusive of both. So this is that masculine form that's included. This is the masculine form, so we would include female. Whereas if I gave you just the female form, Adelphe, that means sister. And it only means sister. It does not mean brother. Whereas Adelphos means brother, and it also includes sisters. This is something that people don't understand, unfortunately, too often when they're reading the New Testament and maybe older translations, but this is consistently true that the grammatically masculine form in OS here, Adelphos, will include females almost always, unless it's something that has only to do with a male and specifically maybe a male part of the body or something, uh, but otherwise it, it's inclusive. I've just seen too much argumentation over people not knowing the uh, nature of the language and how these things are true for a given language like, like Greek and older English. Okay, here in, in uh, 317, someone who has the world's goods. This is the word bios up above, a form of life, but it also means could mean like livelihood and how one makes one's living and the things that one actually gets from it. 
or anyone who sees his brother in need and has the ability to help and closes off his, his emotions, how does love abide in him? Is there actually love in him, remaining in him or not, is the question in uh, 17. And then finally in verse 18, little children, again, I've mentioned this is an endearing form to one's students, one's followers. There is a good word for that. We would probably just call people by their names or uh, say something like fellas or something like that. Let us not love in word or tongue, but rather in deed and in truth. Anyone have a different translation there for truth? It is the word for truth that occurs in over and over again in this epistle and in all of John. But the same word does mean reality as well. You know, so we should be loving not only in speech, in tongue, but rather in deed and in reality. That's what's being said here. I want to look up this word tongue because I'm not sure if that has some other meaning. That's the word glossa. Like glossolalia. Yes, the same root. A body of words and systems that makes up a distinctive language, a language, a tongue. Uh, an organ of speech. No, it doesn't give me any other meaning. Glossa means tongue, physical tongue. Also means language. I'm just wondering if this is a reference to glossolalia, as you were saying, David. Well, at least at least the same root. <laughs> yeah, because speaking in tongues. <laughs> the word that's used before that is logos, which doesn't usually mean word. It means the speech, a talk. That word still has those meanings in modern Greek. In older Greek, ancient Greek, it had many other meanings, but in modern Greek, it just continued several of the meanings, and these are two that it still has. It also means a sermon, a homily, an account, an account of something. You give an account of something. These are the modern Greek terms. So it's saying here, let us not love in just talk or in tongue, whatever, however you translate that, but in deed and in reality. Henry? Yeah. In verse 17, is that brother, the, the general term for brother, is that for somebody in the church or just everybody? Now, my understanding in general is that when the word brother is used, it's referring specifically to other members of a house church, uh, you know, another Christian. <clears throat> it was an unusual thing in the Greek world. This was, this was something amazing that these Christians were calling each other brothers and sisters. Uh, it wasn't uh, something that was <laughs> out there as normal in the Greek world, the Roman world. Okay, so it was those who were in the fellowship. Yeah, right. That they're referring to. Right. I'm trying to remember if it was also used earlier in Judaism. Maybe someone can might recall the use of that in the Old Testament. Henry, speak to that, but I do have verse 18, a couple of alternate renditions, which I think carry the same spirit as the uh, more literal translation that I see in Revised Standard Version. Two other translations, which I think convey the same sense, though not the same literal words. N New English Bible, 
for verse 18, love must not be a matter of words or talk. It must be genuine, the aletheia, and show itself in action. And then the um, today's English version, our love should not be just words and talk. It must be true love, which shows itself in action. So whether yeah. you say true or genuine, they're all pointing in the same direction, I think. Yeah, that, that, those sound fairly good. Uh, let me get back to the screen here. This logos of speech and talk, it also just, you know, this can refer, I should say, it also just words in general, not a single word, but even though the, mm -hmm. it's singular in Greek, but it's whatever gets spoken, whatever is verbally expressed is logos. That's one general okay. whole sphere of meanings. So rather than saying in word, but in words, it might be a better way of translating it, yes. So in, in words or in the language you're using. Anything else here? Henry, I want to share the... Uh, Go ahead. The New Jerusalem Bible translation. Children, uh -huh. our mm -hmm. love must not be just words or mere talk, but something active and genuine. Yeah, real. That's right. Reality. Yes. Uh, getting back to that word, let me go back there. Aletheia, that's the adjective. And of course, it means true. And it also means real. And there's also one other adjective, too, in the same root. Aletheia. All these words are used in this epistle, means true or real. So, Aletheia, 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 Aletheia. I've hunted up two more translations, 20th century, individual rather than corporate efforts. Goodspeed uses the word lips. Dear children, let us love not with words or lips only, but in deed and truth. And then Weymouth says the same thing. Let us not love in word only and with the lips, but in okay. deed or truth. I'd have to look more closely, go to some other Greek sources, Greek lexicons, uh -huh. and I'm just wondering if, why we, where in English we would say, you know, giving someone lip service, I wonder if they use the word tongue in that kind of case, which would make sense here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because I was thinking, yeah. you know, what we're talking about here is hypocrisy, pretense, you know, that right. you can't just say one thing and do another. They have to match. So it, it is real clear about hypocrisy here. In other words, walk the talk. Yeah. All right. I think we've covered that sentence. All right. Let's go on here. By this, we will know that we are from the truth and will reassure our hearts before him whenever our hearts condemn us. For God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. Beloved, if our hearts do not condemn us, we have boldness before God, and we receive from him whatever we ask, because we obey his commandments and do what pleases him. I'm seeing cardia for uh, hearts, also rendered conscience. Right. I mean, so often it's one's conscience or consciousness. And I think here the sense of conscience is here clearly. If our conscience is condemning us, but God is greater than our heart, and he knows all things. Mm -hmm. If you have maybe too scrupulous a conscience and are always feeling guilty about everything, 
God knows more than you do. On the other hand, at 21, beloved ones, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his orders, his commands, and we practice the things that are pleasing in his eyes, before him, in his eyes. And this is his order, his command, that we believe, that we put our trust in the name of his son, that we have trust in the basic nature, the name of his son, Jesus Christ anointed, and we love one another, just as, as he gave us the command. I've mentioned this before, but it doesn't hurt again to repeat it. Anima is the word that means name, basic name, but also so often it can refer to the basic nature of something, the, the essence of something. And this verb that usually gets translated as believe is so often maybe better translated as to trust, put one's trust in, have confidence in. You see this word confidence? That's a word borrowed from Latin. There's a Latin word, fides, which means a belief or faith. And so confidence is this trust. It's this faith, this true belief in something. We have confidence in, have trust in, and that's what's being talked about here. Put your trust in the basic nature of Jesus, anointed Jesus, the Christos, the anointed Jesus. This is the command. This is the order that we put our trust in the basic nature of his son, Jesus. And of course, we've talked about Huyas before, his son. And in spiritual rank, a son is greater than a prophet, as it's mentioned in the first couple of verses of the first chapter of Hebrews. A prophet is someone who speaks for God. That's what it literally means doesn't just mean to prophesy about the future, but it's to be a spokesperson for God, a spokesman for God. But a son is a prophet in something even greater, a son of God, and that's what Jesus was. As you know, at the beginning, first chapter of John, it says he's monogenes, uh, a unique son, only begotten, I think is perhaps the King James translation, only begotten, unique, one of a kind, one of, one of a kind son of God. And the one keeping his commands, his orders, abides in him, remains in him, stays in him. Uh, that verb we've had a number of times here. Abides, remains, stays, continues in him, and he in him. So the one who keeps God's commands remains in that spirit of God. And the spirit of God, the spirit of Christ, remains in him. I'm thinking in, in Acts, Paul speaks of, in him we live and move and have our being, so that if we are truly in that consciousness, in that righteousness, we are acting and living and speaking without hypocrisy, but doing God's will, then we are in that spirit of God, we are living in him, and he in us. Just going back to 23 and 24. And this is his commandment that we should believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. 
So putting our trust in the basic nature of his son, Jesus, the anointed, and loving one another just as he has commanded us. And 24, all who obey his commandments abide in him, and he abides in them. And by this we know that he abides in us by the spirit that he has given us. I have two translations that use the phrase to be in union with. How does that accord with you? He keeps in union with us. That sentiment is elsewhere in the New Testament. I don't think it's being said here in this specific verse, okay? Okay. That is something you do read elsewhere in, I think we read it earlier actually here in this epistle. We know that he is staying, he is remaining, he continues in us from the spirit of which he has given us. So we know from the Spirit that the Spirit is in us if we are in this state of being totally loving and righteous. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming. And now it is already in the world. Little children, you are from God and have conquered them. For the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore what they say is from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us, and whoever is not from God does not listen to us. From this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Okay, in verse 1 here, we have the same verb as believe. Do not believe every spirit. Do not put your trust in every spirit, but on the contrary, test the spirits, whether they are from God, since many false prophets have gone out into the world. I think I've mentioned in this series, we have these two important functions of teaching and of ministering or prophesying in these early house churches. And at the same time, there were many other false Christians or false teachers that we are warned about that are not teaching what is true. I wonder if he's referring to Gnostics. Too early. No Gnostics at this time. But the Gnostics sort of held that he didn't really come in the flesh. These are the Docetists. Docetists. Okay. Uh, that can be that, referred that, to here. That's what a lot of scholars believe. So they are um, pre-Gnostics. Pre-Gnostics, okay. There's a lot of problems we're getting into in the next couple of verses here. I think I've resolved some of them in my head, and then the new ones pop up. So uh, we'll, we'll get to it in a minute, maybe, or, or next time. But these false prophets, this isn't just with regard to this, this congregation of John, but elsewhere, if you remember in Didache, there was also talk there about prophets and teachers and false prophets and false teachers to be careful about them if you come across them. In a sense, early Quakers also really were saying a lot of what was being taught in the churches that were in England at that time was very similar. 
that they felt they have gone astray, just as these early false prophets and false teachers were leading people astray. The long, dark night of the apostasy. Over centuries, things just changed so that you didn't recognize the early church anymore, sort of hidden under a lot of false negative accretions over the centuries. In verse 2, it says here, In this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit which acknowledges Jesus anointed in flesh, having come in flesh, is from God. A new problem for me is that the Greek here doesn't say in the flesh, it just says in flesh. <laughs> if you've ever taught, well, I've tried teaching English, uh, I have done some teaching of English as a second language, and trying to teach the articles, the and an and a, to someone who, in whose language there are no articles, like Russian, it's very difficult how to explain some of those differences if none of those differences exist in their own language. Greek has a definite article. It does not have an indefinite article. This causes problems with translations. <clears throat> a definite article in Greek comes in different forms depending on what form it is. And that's the definite article in ancient Greek. So it's equal to the word, English word, the, T-H-E. The definite article isn't used the same way as we use it in modern English. Most often it is, but there are all sorts of cases where it's not used or it's used differently. I may have mentioned that when you use an abstract noun in ancient Greek, you will use the definite article with it, even though in modern English you don't use it. You could say life is good. If you said that in French, you'd have to use a definite article, article the life, la vie, or in Italian, la vita. Same thing in ancient Greek, you'd have to use a definite article with an abstract noun. Also, when you're referring to a person by name, most often you'd use the article, definite article, the. So instead of just saying Jesus, I would say the Jesus in Greek. That's the normal way of saying it, the Jesus. You probably know this name, Socrates. Yes. So that's, that's Socrates. And you'd say the Socrates. So when there is no article, it could be no article in English, or it might be an indefinite article. If you recall, one of the soldiers at the crucifixion of Jesus says, truly this man was the son of God in some translations. The Greek has no definite article there, so it could be, and it probably is, truly this was a son of God, because a pagan Roman soldier would not refer to him as the son of God. He would have just thought he was some kind of pagan godlike figure, a son of God in that sense. So the true translation there would be, truly, he was a son of God. These are small words, these little words, the and a and an but they can make a distinction and a, a difference in meaning for us speaking English. And it gets even more complex in some other languages that have more than two articles, indefinite or indefinite. I know Macedonian has three, Bulgarian has three. Uh, it gets pretty complex. I'm just bringing this up as a problem in translating from the Greek into any language like English, where you've got articles, but they're not always used the same. So it's kind of hard sometimes. You have to really think of what's really being said as to how to translate something correctly. 
Henry, before we end, I just would like to respond to what Jack had mentioned in that phrase, Jesus Christ is come in the flesh. The early friends understood that to mean that Jesus Christ was come in our flesh, the believer's flesh, rather than referring to the historical life of Jesus in Jerusalem in the first century that the defining, knowing the Spirit of God was done by those spirits that confessed that Jesus Christ was in them. It wasn't a reference to that historical Jesus. It was the reference to Christ within. So that was the, the approach the early friends had about that phrase. Yeah, yes. Uh, I do have a question also about verse 2 there. It says, hereby, in the King James, hereby know ye the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesseth that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. What is the Greek for every spirit? Pneuma. Let me get there again. Pneuma. Pan is every or each. So that's every spirit or each spirit. Yeah, it's interesting that the word spirit is used there rather than the word person is used. It sets up the idea that it's a spiritual presence in the believer's flesh to use the word spirit. Oh, yeah. I didn't realize that. Yes, uh, that's a good observation. The pneuma that is confessing is... That of God in me answering that of God in you, corresponding to that of God in thee. That's what's being said here. I didn't think of this word pneuma here. Yes, that's right. That's interesting. Just because we think of every spirit in English as a person, they're using this word pneuma, which is not a normal way of saying that in Greek. Yeah. And so it just rhymes with the rest of that sentence. It, it makes it a spiritual statement to say Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, if it is a spirit that is saying it. The other issue I have, that's why I don't want to go on with this too much at the moment, because we've got to continue it next time. The uh, having come is a participle. Jesus Christ having come is a participle that modifies Jesus Christ and it's in the perfect form, the present perfect form, which is completed action, has come, rather than a continual or progressive form, imperfective form. That's what makes us a little messy. I'm not strong on this, but I think that maybe early friends had a lot of other statements they could have used, or I should say citations they could use to say the same thing. But I'm still wondering, given the grammar of this, that this could might not it, be exactly what's being said here. Could it, that per, uh, perfect tense be chosen to underscore it or for emphasis? I just glanced at this. Let me just give you that verb form or the participle form. That's an accusative, singular, masculine, present perfect participle. And it's one verb in English, but it's, it's participle meaning having come. And the sense is that it's completed, the action's completed. I mention this because in glancing at Raymond E. Brown's uh, book a week ago, he was talking about the tenses there, and I was getting lost trying to understand what he was saying. And then I saw this, and he's saying, oh, this, this makes it a little bit more complex. 
Henry, I'm seeing a different verb. Erkomai. What verb, verse? Uh, the one we're looking at, too, has come in the flesh. Erkomai. Oh, okay. Hold on now. Let me just check and see if there are other manuscripts that have a present tense. That will change everything. Jesus Christos Erkomai and Sarx. No, it doesn't mention here. I'd have to, to look and see what was the Greek text that was the basis of the King James translation. What is it? Erkomanon? Right. Well, that would be the same verb, but in the present continuous tense. What I'm looking at here in the textual commentary, which often gives variants that may be important, it doesn't mention that, so I can't tell. And I don't have the Greek translation that was used for the King James Version. If it's present, then it would clearly mean has come. It would be comes in still coming. So which verb participle it is makes all the difference in the world here. Why wouldn't it, the form of the verb became Jesus Christ came in the flesh rather than is come in the flesh? Oh, well, I mean, in English of the 17th century, verbs of motion had the same kind of pattern as in modern German, where instead of saying, I have come, you say, I am come. Or instead of say, I had run, I would have said, I was run. They didn't use the form have or had, they used the form was or is or am in 17th century English. That changed, I think, in the 18th century. So that was normal English for uh, the 1600s and earlier, as it is still in modern German. If anyone here knows German, you know that with any verb of motion, you can't say, I have run, I have walked, I have moved. You have to say, I am moved, I am walked. And that's how it was done still in English at that time. It's the old... Is, is there a distinction between, say, has run and ran? Ran would be uh, something that happened in the past and was completed. I am come in, in George Fox's English. I am come would be equivalent of, of I have come today. And that form means both in the past and continues into the present. As opposed to came. We don't have that kind of perfective aspect. It's called imperfective aspect and perfective aspect in English. It's not like in Greek. Is there anything further as that they're common on where it's from or anything else on that? I have three translations that use the form has come and one says came. Where did the form ekomenon, where did they the, get that form? In the Greek Mounts Reverse Interlinear New Testament, carried in Bible Gateway. So I don't know if there are variants in the manuscripts. Yeah, okay. Anyway, yeah, I think we've done enough of this right now for now. Mounts, huh? I only know Mounts as a Greek grammarian. Okay, I, I think we'll stop there. We'll continue from there next week. I do want to just let people know that I'm planning to begin our spiritual topic sessions next month. Uh, hopefully, if all goes well, it will start on Thursday, December the 3rd. That is fifth day, third of 12th month. And that will be at probably 4.30 on Thursdays, on fifth day. Anyway. Does anyone turn the recording off? Ah, uh, yes, that's, that's fine. Let's do that, Henry. Thanks, Nancy.
This podcast has been a production of Ohio Yearly Meeting. It was hosted by Henry Jason and edited by Kim Palmer. The introduction and credits were read by Chip Thomas. The quote in our introduction is from Undaunted Zeal, The Letters of Margaret Fell, edited by Elsa F. Glines. Friends United Press, 2003. We welcome feedback on this or any of our podcast episodes. Contact us through our website, ohioyearlymeeting.org, or email us at oimconservative at gmail.com.